This evening we continue to revisit the impetus for this Sunday evening study, the parable of the talents that we find in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 25 to read verses 14 through 19. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who had received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Let us pray. Our Father, again, we humbly ask that you would open your word to our minds and to our hearts through the working of your Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us, the anointing that we have in Jesus Christ, so that we have need of no one to teach us, but rather, Father, that the teaching or the preaching and reading of your word might be a guide to us and an occasion in each one of our minds to meditate upon your word, and material in the hands of the Holy Spirit to form in our minds right and correct doctrine and in our hearts true and holy worship. And Father, we seek these things because we desire to be true worshipers, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so again, we humbly ask that you would guide not only the preaching of your word, but especially the hearing the meditating and the internalizing of your word, that we might be faithful servants, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, we have been operating under the hypothesis from this parable of the talents from the time I first preached on that on Sunday mornings a few months ago to last Sunday when we revisited it. We've been operating under the hypothesis that Jesus is not talking about money. I think that's a pretty simple observation that even though the, the talents that he speaks of were in fact a, a great deal of money in the exchange rate of that day, that this is not the takeaway. This is not what Jesus is getting at, but rather uh, looking at the whole scope of New Testament teaching concerning the fulfillment of the new covenant prophecies in, Je in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel chapter 36 that there is no better candidate for identifying the talents of this parable than that of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the charismata, that which Jesus sent to us and into our hearts through the person of the Holy Spirit. And so last week we looked at the giving of the talents, the giving of the gifts. This week our emphasis is going to be on the accounting for the talents thus given. Verse 19, a verse that should be very sobering for all believers, though by no means discouraging when one continues to read 
how the master treated those who faithfully were, were stewards of what he had entrusted to them. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those claim, came, master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Those passages sound very similar, do they not? That we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is not that of the unbelieving world, which will indeed appear before the judgment seat of Christ, but rather the church, believers. And this has been a long-standing doctrinal and practical struggle for Christians. We know that, that we are not justified by works, and that what we do in the flesh is gaining us no merit in the eyes of God, that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we know that salvation is by grace through faith alone and not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet we read too many passages in the New Testament that correspond very well with those in the Old Testament, that there is a great deal of responsibility left to us to be faithful, to walk in these things, to obey the statutes and ordinances of the Lord, for we will settle accounts. The Lord, when he appears, will settle accounts with his servants. And that, again, should be a very sobering principle for all of us. To all appearances, when we read the letters of Paul, of James, and of John, what the believer makes of the gifts, the talents that he has given, is largely up to him. What the believer does with that which the Lord has given through the Holy Spirit is largely up to her. And that is a real mental struggle. How can I be saved by grace and yet judged by works. And that is how many theologians have put it. Granting that he is at work within us, both to will and to do according to his pleasure, yet we are by no means passive drones in our Christian life. There's no way anybody can read the New Testament and come away with the idea that we are merely puppets on a string, that we have no responsibility for what we do, but only God does what he pleases. But rather, we must come away realizing that though we have been given this tremendous outpouring of grace and mercy, and though our justification is solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ, yet we have tremendous responsibility before the Lord. We have been given, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, according to the measure of grace determined by God. We have been given talents. We have been given gifts. And we will give an account. And so it is a perennial struggle, I think, for the church in its preaching to convey to the congregation both of those seemingly opposite principles that salvation is solely by grace through faith, and yet we have been given gifts according to the measure of grace, each one of us, as we saw last week, and we will give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. It appears as well that in reading the New Testament with regard to the Holy Spirit 
and the believer. The main goal for the believer is to not get in the way. And I think that's an important principle because there are many books written and there are many believers who think that it is their responsibility to do great things for the Lord. Well, not many of us are called upon to do what we would call great things. And in reality, none of us do great things for the Lord. That, that is an impossibility for us. We, would, uh, we, we heard in the prayers and uh, this evening, the, the, just the, uh, the, the mental uh, inability we have to comprehend us magnifying the Lord, who is so magnificent in and of himself. And doing great things. And, and sometimes you hear this from professing believers. What, what they have done for the Lord. And so that's a, that's a false direction that I want to make sure we don't even, we don't even lean to. Much, much less go that way. That when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit. That in any way we're talking about us doing something for the Lord. You hear people say, well, you know, if, if, if the believers aren't the Lord's hands and the Lord's feet, then, then he is without hands and without feet. No, he is sovereign and almighty. It is our privilege and blessing to be instruments in his hands. But we're never his hands. To be instruments and to carry, but we're never his feet. And when we read the scriptures, it seems like with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ, with regard to God himself, Jehovah, the people of God's first responsibility and most difficult one is to simply not bring shame upon his holy name. And with regard to the work of the Holy Spirit, it seems that our first priority is not to get in the way. Not to, for example, lie to the Holy Spirit, professing to be what we are not. Hypocrisy is essentially lying to the Holy Spirit. We are not to quench the Holy Spirit, we're told in Scripture. And certainly we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. You see, all of these are in a sense negatives. And, and they can be summarized by saying, don't get in the way. It is a work in and of itself simply to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, which is literally what Paul means in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, if we walk by the Holy Spirit, and J.I. Packer has written an excellent book called Keeping in Step with the Holy Spirit. What happens when you're not in step? Probably not many of you have had the experience that, that I did growing up in a very ethnic community of Italians and Polish, and that is to dance the polka. I know, that might be really incredible for you to think. <laughs> My oldest sister and I would dance the polka at our various cousins' weddings. And you don't want to get out of step when you're dancing the polka. That can, that can lead to lost time injury. <laughs> Workman's comp claims. When you, you, you get out of step, the same is true in the military. Now, that I have no experience. Well, that's not true. I was in ROTC for one year. But getting out of step will cause... Stumbling, it'll cause chaos, it'll cause misdirection. And so the, really the only, the only positive thing that we're told as believers with regard to the work of the Holy Spirit is to keep in step. Which means our responsibility is not so much to, to exalt this gift or that gift, certainly not to have prejudices within the church regarding the gifts, as was the problem at Corinth, 
but rather to learn the cadence of the Holy Spirit. There is a cadence to a polka. There is a cadence to a military march. It's a funny thought if you were to cross them over. <laughs> Switch them. But there's definitely a cadence there. And if you don't know the cadence, which is usually being called out, isn't it? Either by the musicians or the sergeant, it's being called out. Sometimes there will be singing to call out the cadence. And, and that's an analogy, I think, that works with the scriptures which are infused with the Holy Spirit. And as David mentioned this morning in Sunday school, it's the Holy Spirit that conveys God's word to our hearts. And so what we're listening to and for is the cadence that we might keep in step. Sadly, when we look to find out what that cadence is, especially when we look to the letters of Paul, and most people, when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, turn to Paul's letters to the Corinthian church. Well, folks, their polka was all messed up. In fact, they were polking right over people. And in Romans 14, some were trying to march while others were trying to dance. So, so much of Scripture is telling us of incidences and examples of being out of cadence. And that's really a, a struggle because, you know, in preaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, I want to be able to say something very positive. This is what we should do. When I look at the Scriptures and I, and I read the Scriptures, I find out more of what we shouldn't do. And one thing we cannot do that has been done and is continuing to be done in the church is to make a division within the church between those who know what they're doing and those who don't. Now, the way that has probably been taught or heard in your own experience is that of the distinction between a spiritual and a carnal Christian. And I think that it's important for us to address that false and disagreeable teaching with regard to carnal Christians. Now, there are two basic flavors of this teaching within the evangelical community in the modern church. There's the Pentecostal and there's the fundamentalist. And both of them are in error and both of them lower the bar and raise false expectations at the same time. They lower the bar, for example, in the case of the Pentecostal by saying that there are those who are Christians but have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so they are merely carnal Christians. But they're, they're Christians. It's okay. They just need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So not only have they lowered the bar, they've, they've introduced the expectation of God coming in with a second blessing to help them over the bar. And that's not what Scripture teaches. The Pentecostal view founders against Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where we actually find this term carnal. And we'll look at that in a moment. The fundamentalist, on the other hand, the carnal Christian is the believer who has not yet given Jesus the throne of his heart. You've seen the little pamphlets and you've heard the sermons about how you, know, you can have Christ as Savior 
and, and you're saved, once saved, always saved, but then you have that little image of the heart and the throne in it, and, and there you are, and, and Jesus is over here, and sometimes he's knocking at the door. We've got to bring in the Revelation passage. And so rather than expecting a second blessing from the Holy Spirit, many in the fundamentalist camp are, are exhorting the individual Christian to get off the throne and let Jesus on. And that's the, that's the transfer between being a carnal Christian and being a spiritual Christian. But they're all of the same flavor, really. Sometimes it's a, a backsliding Christian, and you, you've heard that quite a bit too, and I'm not denying the possibility of backsliding. I just think way too much has been made of it. What does Scripture teach? Is there such a distinction within the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, between um, caste, a Brahmin caste of the spiritual, and maybe a, a lower caste, not untouchable, mind you, but a lower caste of those believers who are merely carnal. Is it possible that these teachings have been developed within the church to help us, especially in the ministry, but, but in our own families, to help us deal with the reality that many people who profess faith in Jesus Christ show no fruit of any spiritual change in their life. That's a sad and tragic reality that every generation has had to deal with. But you don't deal with that by changing the doctrine of Scripture. You can only deal with it by acknowledging the possibility that they're not saved. Don't make up categories for them, especially if those categories may fatally deceive those who are not in Christ that might lead them to a false security, that because they walked down the aisle or signed a card or raised the hand, nodded the head or squeezed a hand at the end of life, they're in. When in fact, there's no fruit. And Jesus said it's by a fruit. By the fruit, a tree shall be known. By the sweetness of the water, a well shall be known, whether it is sweet or brackish. Let's consider 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you would like to turn there, I'm not going to look at the entire passage, but particularly um, the first verse where Paul, in a statement really dripping with sarcasm, says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not able. Now, what is ironic about this is if you read carefully the, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, you realize that the Corinthians themselves had a very high opinion of their own spirituality. And in the Greek, the, um, the words that are used have, have, have had to been embellished. For example, where he says, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, the, the word is literally as to spirituals. The word is pneumatikoi, spirituals. He says, but no, I, I had to speak to you as men of the flesh. Well, that word is just fleshlies, not fleshies, fleshlies. The word is sarkinoi, 
But the Latin for flesh or for meat is carnis. And so from the Latin translation, we get the word carnal, fleshly, meaning those who operate from their basest instincts, from their human understanding, from their human sensualities, but do not operate and are not guided from the higher principles of the operation of the Spirit himself. And so when we read, and, and so many Pentecostals will turn to 1 Corinthians to talk about the gifts without realizing that the whole letter is a polemic to the church. It is, it is a letter of, of rebuke. But on the other hand, we must notice that Paul never rebukes them for actually operating in the gifts. He never tells them not to. He never condemns them, and he never says, oh, oh that's of the devil. What's of the devil is their sin, their factions and their divisions and their prejudice and their pride. In thinking that they were spirituals, Paul says, no, you're not spirituals, you're fleshlies. That must have hit them very hard. And Paul makes no distinction among the congregation at Corinth as if some were on a higher plane than others, that some had received a second blessing and others had not. He does not. He lumps, he lumps them all together. Gordon Fee, who is a contemporary theologian and a Pentecostal, and he, he makes no bones about that. In fact, he has actually uh, used that fact that he is a Pentecostal to try to bring to the Pentecostal community a, a theological analysis of what it is they do. And so he has written some excellent treatises on the work of the Holy Spirit. But Gordon Fee writes, he is not addressing a faction within the congregation, but the church as a whole. And so, in spite or perhaps because of the manifestations of the Spirit, the tongues, the prophecy, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, interpretations, etc. The Corinthians were carnal. Now when we read the letters to the other churches, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, we read the pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus, we don't read of anything going on in those churches like that which was going on in Corinth. It seemed like Corinth was, was on fire with the Spirit. So much happening. These other churches were so incredibly fundamentalist. They were so Baptist, you know, they were so boring. And yet, in spite of all of that, what we might say, and the Pentecostal does say, were, were eminent manifestations of the Holy Spirit, they were the carnal Christians. Paul does not condemn the charismata, but he does make a consistent point that the charismata cannot be a covering for sin in the congregation, nor is it a justification for division and factions. He says, let all things be done for edification. Now that's an important principle because, Lord willing, the next time we meet, we're going to begin to look at the various gifts as we read them in the scriptures. But we need to understand as a basic principle that if it does not edify, 
And please hear this carefully. If it does not edify, though it may be from the Spirit, it is not of the Spirit. The Spirit of the prophet, Paul says, is subject to the prophet. This goes back to what I said earlier. There is a, a remarkable sense that we get out of Scripture and from the parable of the talents that once Jesus Christ has given us the gift, what we do with it is up to us. And he doesn't pull the gift away. Nowhere does Paul say those gifts that you are operating in are not from the Holy Spirit. But underlying all that he is saying, he's saying your use of them is not of the Holy Spirit. We are not drones. We are not puppets. We are responsible members of the body of Christ. And we have been each one given gifts according to the measure of grace, which is determined by the wisdom of God. And what we do with those is up to us, and for which we will give an account. That's, that's really kind of remarkable when you think about it. And so we can't say to one another as we look at other churches and say, oh, that's not from the Holy Spirit. Oh, no, it very well might be from the Holy Spirit. But it may not be of the Holy Spirit. And what we do in our congregation with the teaching and preaching, the fellowship, the administrations, the gifts of serving, the gifts of teaching, of speaking, all of which may very well be from the Holy Spirit, but if they generate discord and division, if they generate pride, or if they cover sin, they're not of the Holy Spirit. In fact, they're an abomination to the Holy Spirit. And we will give an account. Paul never advised the Corinthians to seek a second blessing. Nowhere in, the, in this, um, as I said, polemic letter that he rebukes the church for their childish behavior, their worldly, carnal, fleshly behavior, does he said, you all need to get together and pray that the Holy Spirit would give you a second blessing so that you can get over this. Basically what he says to them in this passage is you need to grow up. That's what he says. You ought to be able to handle solid food. The preacher to the Hebrews says, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you still have need of others to teach you. And this is a, a recurring situation in many churches and in many believers. It's time to grow up. It's time to realize that that you are marching to the beat of your own drum, you're dancing to the tune of your own instrument, and you need to get in step with the Spirit. But is being carnal an option for believers? And this is where we switch from the Pentecostal view, from Corinthians, of maybe looking for that higher blessing and that empowerment manifested, especially by speaking in tongues. We shift now over to the more fundamentalist view where in a large sense the evangelical church of our country has created a category of nominal Christians. People that we have on our church rolls, people that we say are saved because they made that profession of Christ and they wrote the date down in the front of their Bible. They've been baptized, but they're carnal. 
Or, or a child who, who followed after, seemingly followed after the ways of the Lord during their childhood, but no longer does. They're backslidden. It's okay. Maybe it is, but is that teaching actually biblical? We do not know the hearts of men, and we shouldn't try. God knows those who are His. But that doesn't give us the right to create categories of Christians that are not biblical categories. Is it okay to be a carnal Christian? This is at the center of the issue of the lordship debate that I've talked about before, where some men teach that you can accept Jesus as your Savior, but it is optional whether you accept him as your Lord. Now that's the more blatant stating of what is a common position, what I said earlier about letting Jesus have the throne of your heart. It's essentially the same thing. But is it biblical? Well, we turn to Romans 8, and I would maintain that this fundamentalist position breaks apart on the rocks of, of Paul's teaching in Romans 8. He makes no distinction between carnal Christians, but he says rather in verse 4, regarding, to, regarding what we could not do in verse 3 because of the sin in the flesh, which is again that carnus what we could not do in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now maybe he's making a distinction there, that the requirement of the law is fulfilled in those of us who walk according to the Spirit. Which leaves those who walk according to the flesh as not fulfilling the requirement of the law. Which when you go back to verse 3 is not a good place to be. In fact, when you move down to verse 9, he says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and this is where he destroys any sense of distinction within the body of Christ as to those who are carnal, meaning in the flesh, and walking after the flesh, versus those who are in the Spirit. He says, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Simply put, he's not a Christian. That's a hard truth. But we don't do anyone any good by minimizing it or by destroying it altogether by creating false categories which really only salve our own conscience, either as a minister of the gospel, a pastor of a church, convincing ourselves that, that those who are in our congregation are in fact believers, true children of God, or as parents or siblings or whatever, that our son or our daughter or our husband or our wife is okay, when in fact we should be praying for their salvation. We're asking for a second blessing or admonishing and conjoling and praying that they would make Jesus Lord of their heart. Paul says if they have not the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Him. By Paul's standards, are all professing Christians truly regenerate? By the same token, are any? And hopefully, if you are in Christ, 
And you read these passages, you, you can only think, how, how can I be saved? How, how can I possibly pass muster looking at, at, at this? I do not fulfill the law perfectly by any means. Do we, would we say of ourselves, perhaps when we're examining our hearts before the Lord's Supper each month, would we say that we have arrived, that we have attained perfection, that we walk in the Spirit, that the guiding of the Holy Spirit is the sole arbiter of our decisions and our ambitions and our actions? No, we wouldn't say that. We'd be deceiving ourselves. And so we have that really difficult conundrum. We have a, a very, very high bar, and that is the righteous requirements of the law being fulfilled in us. That's the bar. And we don't have any expectation of a boost from the Holy Spirit to get us over that bar. Anything more than we have already received. He says, if you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. No expectations of a second blessing, of a baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, then you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and have been gifted with those talents. Douglas Moo writes, God not only provides in Christ the full completion of the law's demands for the believer, that's what we call justification, technically, but he also sends the Spirit into the hearts of believers to empower a new obedience to what he demands. That's what we call sanctification. Paul starts out Romans 8 in Romans 7, where he honestly acknowledges the struggle of every true believer who sees a law at work in his members that wars against the law that in his mind. In his mind, he wishes to glorify God and obey him. In his body, there are these temptations and these actions and these decisions. And that he's a wretched man. But then he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. That's the bedrock. We may not be able to logically put it all together, how it is that we can be saved by grace, and yet we will be called to an account for the deeds done in the body, which are clearly of our own doing and responsibility. But we can understand this, that the penalty of the transgression of the law was fully laid upon Jesus Christ at Golgotha. And God does not dabble in double jeopardy. He does not try us twice. We have been acquitted if we are in Christ. And there is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ. There will be an accounting. There will be, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, loss. Those ministers of the gospel who build with wood and hay and stubble, the works that they have done will be burned up but Paul says they will pass through as yet, yet as one coming through the fire. There'll be the smell of smoke on them because the works with which they surrounded themselves and perhaps even clothed themselves in, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that. In the accounting of the heart, they will, found, they will be found to be truly of Christ. They're in Christ, but their works will be lost. And I think that goes true for every individual believer. I think in the parable of the talents, the third 
servant did not, did not fare well at all. But I don't know that we can make a dogmatic statement that all those who bury God's talents are unbelievers. Rather, I think we can say that those who profess to be in Christ must realize that they have been given gifts and they need to improve them. They need to invest them. They need to bring about a return. The encouraging news, I think, is that contrary to the stock market, whatever we invest with regard to the gifts of the Holy Spirit will return some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Because God is the, the great, uh, this sounds even blasphemous, but He is the financier. He is the one who will, in the mundane sphere, He is the one who gives the power to make wealth. But He is the one who will guarantee the return. From Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, we realize what is our fundamental blessing in the Holy Spirit. One, it's to know God, and two, it's to obey Him. I think that underlines everything we're going to be talking about when we talk about individual gifts, both for our own building up in our faith and the edification of the body. It is to know God and to obey God. These are the most essential characteristics of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. These are, I believe, the criterion of judgment. God is not going to ask us what we did for Him. Rather, I think it'll be more did we know him and did we obey him? And we can go on and on about many, like the prodigal son's older brother, who professed and protested how much he had done for his father, but he never came to know his father. And so we turn then finally to Galatians chapter 5, where Paul writes, But I say, you know, kind of summing all this up, but I say, Walk, literally, keep in step with the Holy Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The effect of the new covenant is to empower believers to do just that. Listening for the cadence of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation, listening for that cadence of God's laws, but also, more importantly, I believe, God's heart God's will, God's love, His mercy, His grace. God's will is now, one writer says, it's now an inward principle. The result of the leading of the Spirit within the believer. Eugene Peterson wrote a book. Uh, it's a good book. It's just paperback. But the title of it is what has always struck me and stuck with me. It's titled, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us that grace, which you have given us. Enable us to see it, to understand that we have each been entrusted with the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to the measure of grace that you have given. And help us, Father, not to bury those talents in the ground, but rather to risk them 
to understand that you will honor our attempts to glorify your name, knowing that we are but poor, unworthy servants. Nonetheless, you will grant back to us, as if it were our own, the return that you provide. And you will bless and magnify and glorify us because it magnifies and glorifies your grace. So, Father, we ask that we might submit ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit and that you would tune our ears, as it were, our spiritual ears to hear the cadence, to know when to march and to know when to dance. Father, we ask that you would do these things for our good and for your glory and for the building up of your church. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand this evening for the benediction from Galatians chapter 6. Paul writes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen.